Welcome to the Heart Rate Variability Podcast. Each week we talk about heart rate variability and how it can be used to improve your overall health and wellness. Please consider the information in this podcast for your informational use and not medical advice. Please see your medical provider to apply any of the strategies outlined in this episode. Heart Rate Variability Podcast is a production of Optimal LLC and Optimal HRV. Check us out at OptimalHRV.com. Please enjoy the show. Welcome, friends, to the Heart Rate Variability Podcast. I am Matt. I'm back here with my good friend and often co-host, Dr. Ina Hazan. You know, always great to see you. Uh, Ina connected us with our very special guest today, Dr. Gidron, coming from us from Israel, which is really exciting. We made all the time zones work out, uh, which is uh, fabulous uh, with this. And uh, Dr. Gidron, just looking at your experience, your research, I'm so excited to have you um, on the podcast. So I would love to start out just uh, just giving a, a quick introduction of yourself and maybe what brought you to heart rate variability just in general before we dig into your uh, research and expertise. Okay, thank you very much for this invitation. Uh, and thank you to my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Ina Kazan. Um, I'm from the uh, University of Haifa, north of Israel, where the brain of your PC is invented every year. In Haifa, <laughs> you need to know that. Um, not in my university, but in Haifa. Um, uh, I'm a professor of health psychology at the University of Haifa School of Nursing. Um, actually, I came to this topic in a funny way. I was I was a head of a master's program in health psychology at University of Southampton, England, UK, and in the middle of a course which is my domain, psychoneuroimmunology. It's sort of like the science of the the why of the who, the the sort of like the mechanisms between stress and disease. So in the middle of a class uh, on cancer, uh, one of these students, uh, Laura Marlowe, who I acknowledged in my first paper, she looks at me and she says to me in her cute British accent, Yori, why does the brain know that we, how does the brain know that we have cancer? And I looked at her and I said, uh, I don't know. And for about, I put it aside. And then a few weeks later, I was in the library and I suddenly saw something about the vagal nerve, which I didn't know anything about. And from that moment for about 50 hours, I did not sleep. And I started making connections. She did not propose the big love. I just stampled on that paper and then I connected things. And that's my work really is about connecting unconnected issues. Uh, and really the domain of psychoneuroimmunology drives you to make connections between domains, across domains and evidence-based work. Uh, voila. And then I came up with the vagal nerve. The activity of the vagal nerve is measured by what's called heart rate variability or HRV, and basically it's the changes in the intervals between pulses. So I always say that the vagus is, and it's responsible for that, the vagus is like the accordionist, the accordionist player on the on the ECG, and I see Ina smiling. So it sort of like makes the changes in the width between, you know, narrow, wide, narrow, wide, and the more it's changing, you're actually activating your vagus more, and you're actually adapting more. I, I love that analogy, survival. by the way. That, that is, the accordion is a beautiful right. way to uh, <laughs> put that out. So uh, I, I, I'll, I'll credit you, but I might have to steal that one. That, that's <laughs> okay. a great one. Okay. And the more you have in most diseases, in many, many diseases, the most, the more you have higher heart rate variability, so more changes in those intervals, actually your risk of severe diseases like 
stroke, heart disease, uh, were the first ones to show on cancer also. And <laughs> a diabetes goes down. And also in many mental diseases, the more you have changes, the less you'll have severe disease, uh, mental disease. Also, we've shown that it actually predicts longer survival, between two to five times more survival in COVID, in cancer, in stroke, in heart disease. It's crazy. It really is. The evidence is amazing. You know, um, Yuri, every time I hear you talk about this and, you know, the since the first time uh, I heard you uh, talk about your research, you know, I've been you know, kind of sought out uh, um, other lectures uh, you know, you've done uh, online and, you know, read uh, quite a bit of your work. Um, and it's incredible how how you uh, make these connections. You know, I've been working in the field of heart variability for 20 some years Um and, um, you know, the importance of the vagal nerve has not been lost on me, uh, but having heard you talk about just how much the vagal nerve influences pretty much everything, right? And it feels like this magic part of us that we are definitely underutilizing and underestimating mm -hmm. uh, its mm -hmm. importance. Uh, but, you know, even uh, the fact that uh, the vagal nerve is the uh, one of the primary drivers in inflammation, right? Which has uh, uh, been implicated. In, uh, the, the inflammation is part of the news. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's talked about as uh, you know one of the main reasons for your clogged arteries, right? You know, it's you know it's not so much you know all the uh, you know eggs you eat, but you know it's it's the inflammation that's producing <laughs> clogged um, arteries uh, and so cardiovascular disease and cancer and you know all those bad things, you know. COVID certainly, you know, all these bad things that kill us. Mm -hmm. um, but I honestly did not uh, realize until I heard you just how much the vagal nerve uh, plays a role um, in inflammation and the ability to reduce it. So I would love to uh, hear you talk uh, a little bit more uh, about that. Okay. You explain it right. so eloquently. So, so the, the, the really what is incredible is, thank you for bringing up all of these things, Ina is that there's a whole scientific domain called neuroimmunology. So it's the science of the relationship and the bidirectional influences between the nerve system and the immune system. And this is not taught. It's not taught in medicine worldwide, not taught in biology, not taught in nursing. And you always ask, well, why? Why is it so frightening? I have no idea. I don't have an answer. So already in the 1970s, they discovered that almost all immune cells have receptors for hormones and neurotransmitters. They're not there to decorate a Christmas tree. They're there for neuromodulation of, of T cells, B cells. So obviously the immune system is influenced by neurotransmitters, by the nerve system, and vice versa. The vagus is one of the major connectors. So the vagus actually tells the brain, it's not the only one, but it's the major branch informing the brain about inflammation. And then the vagus and the brain exert two anti-inflammatory roots, I won't go into it without visual aids here, but one of them is by the, the stress axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal, secreting cortisol, and cortisol, we know, reduces inflammation. And the other one is via the spleen, certain T cells in the spleen. And by these two routes, the vagus modulates inflammation. It's been shown in many studies. I should nominate some people. Kevin Tracy is one of the leaders on this topic in New York. Um, and these are studies that came out in Nature and Science. And it's not taught, and I just cannot still figure out why. There's a lot of ignorance and just misperception. 
And probably one of the major reasons why the Vegas predicts lower risk of these diseases or lower risk of mortality is by lower inflammation. We showed this in one study where we in Brussels, where we showed that the connection between higher heart rate viability and doubling of survival in pancreatic cancer was explained by less inflammation. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. So, you know, we actually have, you know, right inside us, you know, the ability, uh, you know, very real ability uh, mm -hmm. to uh, influence uh, what mm -hmm. what happens to us. And even when something bad is really, you know, is already happening to us, you know, we still have a fair amount of uh, control and ability to make a change. Right. So part of it is genetic, about 40 to 60 percent of the of the vigorous activity is genetic. And some and 40 to 60 percent is about is environmental. So it's influenced by our lifestyle, lack of smoking, uh, Mediterranean food. You are invited to Israel to eat healthier food in Italy and uh, Lebanon, etc. Uh, and uh, and exercise. All these things increase vagal activity. Yoga increases uh, uh, vagal activity. Everything I'm saying is based on evidence. Um, so that good, that's good. It means that there's a, a window of opportunity for us to influence it. What we don't know enough, and that's what I'm sad is, we, we know so much that HRV is a predictor of lower risk of diseases. We know so much that HRV predicts longer survival, but we have not done enough studies. There's a big vacuum there showing whether increasing vagal activity, does it actually prevent disease? Does it actually reduce mortality? And there's more animal research, but not enough on humans. And that's where my research really is right now. So I, I, uh, what, what are you doing uh... In, in to increase people's um, heart rate variability, right. doing biofeedback, are uh, you you know right. getting people to exercise? Or what do you think? So we're doing two things. We're right now running a trial where we're uh, doing biofeedback. So in biofeedback, as you know, we, we you you train people to do deep, slow vagal breathing, and uh, and you see on a screen or a computer screen or on a uh, telephone screen uh, your something that indicates that your HRV is going up. And then you get a feedback that, okay, I'm doing this breathing well. And so we're training people to do that, but we're just running now the study. So we're, and we're hopefully maybe, maybe going to collaborate with two more countries, India and maybe China, which have a huge number. So it will enable us to get to more people, I hope, um, so that we get more statistical power and also cross-cultural, you know, uh, generalizations. These are things and that are important. Another study that we're primary, so that's with one of my students, with uh, Asaf Gitler. And another study that we're right now starting to do is triggering a stimulation of the vagus in the ear. Mm. So you can actually stim. There are vagal branches inside the ear, and you can stimulate the ear with a vagal nerve stimulator. So there are several companies that do that. Some of them are American, some of them are British. And this has been shown already to reduce depression, uh, inflammation. Sorry, this has been shown actually also to reduce depression and other conditions. Uh, and we're not testing it on post-MI patients. We're about to start doing a study on myocardial infarction. Uh, again, because HIV predicts four times more survival in uh, myocardial infarction, and because some animal studies show that if you activate the virus soon after a heart attack, you actually reduce damage in the heart. So th th that's a basis. Matt, you look like you're yeah, I, I've got, yeah, I feel like I got like 20 questions. So the, the first one I'd love to unpack with you a little bit more is that that 40 to 60% that is genetic. Like, mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know, like, I, you know, when I think about heart rate variability, we know 
I don't know if we can say we have great population norms in HRV anyway, but like you see huge standard deviations and often that's accredited to uh, genetic factors. I, I guess, I, I mean, it makes sense that the vagal nerve, but are we talking about like the health or the strength of the accordion player with the, the vagus? Uh, I maybe I'm not, maybe, but I'd love to say, well, what, when you think about the genetic the genetic aspects of vagal functioning. I, I'd love to, if I'm asking even the right question, what, what are some things you see genetics could come into play there? Okay, so I'm not a specialist on this topic. There are people that really know more than this on me, people in the Netherlands like Nina Cooper and other people. I'm not a specialist on, on the, the, the genetics of this, but what you see is that if I would measure it on 100 people, and three of us, and then look at it again over like a few months later, there would be a high correlation between us over time, probably. And that is attributed to some kind of genetic component. On the other hand, it also fluctuates. So when we are in stress, HIV goes down. When we're sleeping, HIV, the vagus uh, celebrates. It should, it should um, uh, increase when we are resting, it increases. So um, it has sort of like what we call in psychology, a state and trait. Uh, um, yeah. so so things fluctuate but also this amount of fluctuation um, stays within a certain uh, range across situations in the same person so that's right. the gene part uh, again I'm not I, I don't want to go into the details so much of the genetics because I'm, I'm not that's not my specialty so we should all yeah, know that, that does make sense with the heart rate yeah that 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 does uh yeah may make sense with what we've talked about on this show in the past with just kind of our set point kind of that trait thing is you want, so if you genetic want. in a way that That's you know right. we always just and there say are gender differences also but yeah. they're also what's important to know is also their age age is one of the major factors just yeah. bad news downhill it just goes yeah. down with age and dramatically yeah. absolutely so, so the second piece of what you said in, in, in the kind of the first question is the, and again, just correct me if I'm, I'm not, maybe not stay, restating this right, but I was fascinated how the vagal nerve, if I heard you right, reacts to inflammation, uh, you know, and creates an anti-inflammation. Because I, I mean, I think I, I always thought about it as if I'm not, if I'm stressed out, the vagal will kind of not have as strong of a break. That sympathetic activation goes up and then bad things happen. I, I didn't know there was kind of a, maybe a reactive vagal response to inflammation. And I want, I want, I just want to kind of make sure I heard that right. And I'd love to hear, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's just mind blowing to me that, if I'm hearing that right, what that would mean in a lot of different ways and maybe some practical, I mean, obviously the vagal stimulation could be a huge aspect in fighting inflammation. So um, uh, during stress, uh, inflammation goes up, um, but we know that <laughs> there's a moment to moment connection between the brain and the immune system via the vagus, not only via the vagus, but mostly via the vagus. And it's a sort of like a negative feedback loop. It's like a, it's like the heat going down in your house in the winter, and the, the thermostat is turning the heat up, so that uh, you, uh, you then become less cold. 
so that's what the Vegas is doing. It's sort of like a thermostat. Uh, it's really the neuroimmunomodulator. It's a modulator of inflammation. Um, and in some people, it's just not working enough. Mm. So that 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 neuromodulation of inflammation is not working enough. Those people have low HRV, and then they have more disease risk. It's always it's also difficult to know what I always say: what comes first, the chicken or the nerve? But but uh, but uh, <laughs> but but from longitudinal studies, it's quite clear that the vagal disactivation happens first, and then the diseases later. Uh, but in some conditions, it's also bidirectional. So like having COVID actually reduces vagal activity. Having um, viruses reduces vagal activity. And then because of that, probably, although I have to be careful with my terminals, people will end up having more inflammation and dying more. So it's been shown in COVID where there was one study, not, not ours, but they, they actually measured in 19 patients in intensive care, inflammation and HRV. And what they found was that the HRV went down before the inflammation went up. Okay. Yeah. So it is quite amazing. I also just want to say before I forget, uh, I'm belonging to this American association. It's brand new called HRVI, the Hartford Velvety Institute. And we're the aim of one of the aims of that organization is to, uh, is to, it's a nonprofit organization, is to really spread the word around American hospitals and universities and we're holding the first HRVI conference on November 30th, 30, uh, in North Carolina. And it's very important. And the really idea is to bring scholars um, and to notify universities and hospitals about this. Because it's it's an issue of life and death, in fact. Absolutely. It, it really is. Yeah, there is so much, there's so much uh, research that is simply unknown, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, even just the, you know, still so many positions disregard heart durability as even being important or, you know, consider it an artifact. Totally. Right. Totally. And that, that's, that's totally. just really, really sad. So uh, I'm so happy to hear that, you know, these efforts. I just want to link to what you said in a, one of, I remember one of the lectures I gave here in Israel and one of the doctors looked at me. She was really skeptical and very negative. The other two doctors were very open and she was really negative. And she said to me, it predicts too many things. It's just, I don't know what to do with it. So I said to her, well, that's the evidence. And I said, but age also predicts everything, right? Why are you accepting age? But the Vegas not, why is that hard? And then I said, and the good thing is that age, we cannot change, but the Vegas, you can. Mm -hmm. So, and she looked at me and, you know, she didn't know what to say. It was very interesting to see the objection. It's very interesting to see this. And like you said, yeah. there's a lot of ignorance and misinformation. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think in the states, we'll get so even stuck. cardiologists we talk to, uh, like don't 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 know sometimes about heart rate variability. So that's I mean, there's just so much space to grow, which is just so exciting as well. I also wanted just to 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 balance. There are things that we don't know why it does not predict. So, for example, in two studies I've done in colon cancer, it does not predict prognosis. We don't know why, particularly in that one. So, and I think that one of the things that we need to know as scientists is that we need to be open when we're right, when we're wrong, and why. Uh, so it's not a magic bullet for everything. <laughs> so, Ina, I don't know if you got a, a follow-up. Uh... Um, my uh, internet connection froze for about 30 seconds. So I didn't <laughs> ask them what Jerry said. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, I was saying that that uh, 
there are some situations where it's not predictive, like in colon cancer, and we don't know why. And I think that one of our emissions is also to understand its limits. When is it predicting? When is it not? When can we increase it? And does it always help? We're not sure. So that's one of my next directions also to, to understand more and also maybe use AI, artificial intelligence, to, to, to increase our capacity of really predicting and preventing diseases. Oh, that makes, yes, that makes so much sense, you know, because, you know, AI can make these connections, you know, in mm -hmm. some ways, even better than the human brain. I think, you know, uh, you know we, we, we can, you know, do the thinking through part and AI can just process right. a ton of data and yeah. show us, you know, how things are That's pretty incredible. Um, I'm also, um, you know, to follow up on that, you know, that bi-directional uh, relationship that you were talking about. Um mm -hmm. You know, we know that um, age, um, you know, affects uh, vagal activity, right? I'm, I'm also wondering whether, um, you know, early childhood experiences, for example, like, you know, developmental trauma, you know, mm -hmm. growing up in difficult environments, you know, mm -hmm. you know adverse events during childhood, um, you know, how much does that play a role in what our heart variability does when we get to be adults? Um, so, a... Not sure, I don't have any studies popping up to my mind now, uh, but we know that we know that uh, several things. First of all, we know that um, um, early trauma is associated with post-traumatic stress and with chronic pain, and both of these things are related to lower HRV. Okay, um, so that's important. Uh, we also know some very interesting studies from psychiatry that have shown that. Because I didn't, I didn't bring up the third player here, which is the brain, and that's really the interesting part. So HIV is associated with with certain brain regions. Um, some of them are limbic, so like amygdala, but mostly with frontal regions. And what's amazing is that HIV is associated with the connectivity between these things, and this connectivity is associated with psychiatric conditions, uh, with inflammation is amazing and also with early trauma um uh, in fact this connectivity is also associated with ptsd so ptsd patients have lower connectivity between the, the limbic system the amygdala and the frontal cortex and hrv is related to more connectivity so again that might be the connection with early trauma or with trauma in general and one of my other domains is prevention of PTSD, early prevention of PTSD, and we're using vagal activity also as part of that intervention. The other part of the intervention is more psychological to increase that connectivity, actually, between amygdala and the cortex verbally by doing it. But um, whether we can amend that, whether we could change it for, in people that have had early traumas, I, I do not know. Uh, you know, there are a lot of questions and answers. I always say that we progress in science by questions and not by answers. That's my that's so that is that is so true. I don't I, I have not seen a study that has looked at you know people with early trauma and whether you know increasing HRV activity um you know mm -hmm. changes uh, brain reactivity. There was a study, I think it was 2021 uh, Schumann uh, study where they actually uh, did HRV biofeedback and then looked at brain connectivity. And, you know, there was a uh, an increase in connectivity between ventromedial prefrontal cortex and amygdala and insula and, you know, several other uh, brain regions. So it seems that, you know, if we do biofeedback, we can influence that uh, 
connectivity uh, within the brain um, and, mm -hmm. you know, hopefully then uh, lead to a reduction in symptoms, you know, trauma, depression, anxiety, and, you know, things like that. Right. So, so it's this connectivity is crucial. There, there, there's been an, one study by Meta, M-E-H-T-A, an amazing study where they actually showed that the amount of connectivity in the press patients between the amygdala and the frontal cortex was related not only with less anxiety, but also less inflammation. And guess what? A similar kind of connectivity is correlated with more vagal activity, with more HIV. So these things probably are all related. And now in my work, I'm actually moving to the next door to the brain. Uh, and that's where we are uh, doing these things. Awesome. So I, I had a question about vagal stimulation. It's one of these things that, you know, I, I, I hear different things about, yeah, it works, but what you buy on Amazon may not be quite what you really need. Like, I always <laughs> like to buy a $60 or less device and try it out. I, I sort of, it's, it's a very fascinating kind of, in some ways, maybe controversial. Some people swear by it. Others think it's a ripoff. So you, you see this back and forth. And I kind of wonder where, where you fall into this, because I think it in many ways, is it a consumer grade product? Is it something that you think I should be implementing into my routine as a HRV nerd? I'd love to like, just Ina knows I'm always looking for the shortcut. So if I can stick something in my ear, like just hold up my electric toothbrush to my ear for five minutes in the morning. But let okay. me get your your thoughts on this. Uh, what you're seeing in your research, and for an HRV nerd that always wants a higher score, uh, you know what what would you say to our audience that might be interested in this topic? So I think I think it's a very good and legitimate question. I think that the um... As I said, we know much more about the relationship between HIV and diseases. We know less about what happens when we try to increase it, either by biofeedback or either by a vagal stimulation in the ear, or there's a surgical one, uh, but I'm, I'm not talking about that one. And there's also an American company, the Gamma Core Electric Core, that stimulates here on the neck. Mm -hmm. um, there are more and more emerging studies on this, but it's still... <laughs> relatively preliminary. So this reduces pain, migraine pain, reduces inflammation. Um, and uh, there have been some early studies showing effects in cardiac patients, but very early stuff. And that's where my research is. And, um, and there's been studies on depression and uh, probably more, I'm just not fully aware. And there's some reviews on this, but again, I think a lot of these studies lack enough statistical power. There are small sample sizes. Uh, again, these are studies that are not necessarily, uh, um, you know, drug companies will not fund them probably and all that. So we're, so it's hard to run these studies. Um, my supervisor in Canada used to tell me that physics is hard science and clinical research is difficult science. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of truth in that. So you, you lose patients because they, they don't want to continue the study and all this, but it's really hard I'm sure that Ina knows what I'm talking about to do these studies, uh, especially when you're talking about intervention. The side effects are small. So we're talking about minor headaches or a bit of a each year, but we're not talking about major events. It's relatively safe. Um, but you should always consult with a physician. Uh, you certainly don't want to do it with people who have bradycardia, so people who have low pulse. Uh, you want to make sure, uh, and probably other 
other conditions, you might want to always consult with a physician. Uh, but again, most physicians don't know about this. So right. how can you consult with somebody who doesn't know? I'm sorry I'm saying this. So it really is a multidisciplinary approach. It needs to have several people. I don't know everything. I need to work with other people who are willing to say, I also don't know everything. So, and it's not always easy to find these people. Um, so maybe go, hold off going on Amazon and buying the cheapest one on the market and focus on my breathing and stretching and those sort of things that we, we know. I think that holding be- a, having a healthy lifestyle, doing exercise, doing yoga, uh, and I'm sick. There's evidence on that. Uh, there's a study with 59 studies, a review of 59 studies showing that yoga increases HRV, especially if it includes uh, slow breathing, uh, Mediterranean diet. Actually, there's a study showing that every increase in Mediterranean diet increases HRV. Uh, so eat a lot of salad, vegetables, uh, olive oil, uh, hummus, and uh, uh, <laughs> and fish, I suppose. Etc. Um, and exercise, just exercise, m- moderate exercise. Yeah. <clears throat> awesome. Ina, um, I want to turn over to you if you got a question. Yeah. So I, I'm a switching topic just a little bit, but I would love to hear a little bit more about your uh, recent work um, with uh, mental health professionals in Ukraine in, uh, you know, working with trauma, you know, in the. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, a lot of trauma going on over there now. Right. So, um, you know, I'd love to hear okay. more about that. Thank you. So um, I've worked with a group called Early Starters from Israel, but also with a group from another humanitarian group called Natal in Israel. And we've been twice. Once we were in Poland working with Ukrainian refugees. And then recently I was in West Ukraine training psychologists there. So... The first one where we, we actually did for the first time, to my knowledge, we, we actually opened a small, within a clinic, a health clinic of Natan, we opened a one meter by one meter small place where we actually measured HRV and showed patients with different diseases, all of them linked to low vagal activity, diabetes, heart disease, chronic pain, anxiety and depression, etc. We showed We measured their HRV. We told them how to do it. We showed them evidence in each domain that it that increasing HIV might help. We gave them a little business card in, in Russian. Uh, uh, now we would do it in Ukrainian, but it was then in Russian, where we showed them how to do deep breathing. And we showed them after three minutes that their HIV went up, their blood pressure went down, their perceived pain and stress went down. And then we said to them, please go home and do it. So this is a non-cost treatment and suitable for humanitarian affairs because it doesn't cost anything. And a lot of these refugees already uh, traveled from place to place with their existing diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, so not only they've been through traumatic events and all that, but some of them had cancer, some of them have heart disease, some of them have diabetes from before. And, you know, they're not going to get much medication. So we thought, why don't we give them this as partial, small, minor help until they get full medical treatment? My other work was on PTSD <laughs> prevention. There's been a terrible, terrible news study showing, I mean, it's a very good study, but horrible news showing that 76%, 76% of the Ukrainian population has PTSD. That's an outrageously high number. Even if it's 60%, we're talking about large numbers, which is understood. And so we were training Ukrainian psychologists 
with early starters, we were training Ukrainian psychologists in PTSD prevention using our method, which is called memory structuring intervention. It's an evidence-based neuroscience-based treatment, which also includes vagal breathing. So we're teaching them how to do it so that they can go and train and teach other people and treat children uh, in Ukraine. It's amazing. Can you talk a little bit more about that intervention? What, what, yeah. what are you teaching people? Yeah, sure. I was going to ask the same thing. It's been published a long time ago. Um, so the memory structuring, well, I first start with not what not to do. <laughs> um, I'm sighing because a lot of mental health still in many countries, not so much in Anglo-Saxon countries, but in all, a lot of other countries, there's still a horrible, unforgivable gap, maybe of between 10 to 40 years, between what we know in research and how people are treated in mental health. It's really horrible. So it's really, really backwards in many, many countries. Israel is in a very interesting transition, moving from a non-evidence-based to a very evidence-based method of mental health, but still is in transition. And and uh, um, so studies have shown that debriefing is totally unhelpful. So what is debriefing? Where you where you uh, sit in a group or an individual way and you tell people within hours or days after an event, traumatic event, please talk about what happened to you. Uh, you legitimize the reactions. It's okay to shake. It's, a, it's okay to tear. Uh, you tell them what is expected, what's called psychoeducation. In the next few hours, you'll have this. In the next few days, you'll have that. And then there's this emphasis on empathy and support, which we really think is very important, and especially emotional expression. But until 1990, nobody ever tested this thing. And then study after study showed it's not working. It's just not preventing PTSD. And worse than that, actually studies showed that Two studies, one in England and one I don't remember where, showed that actually it causes more PTSD. And then, so what do you do? Everything I'm saying is based on studies. And then, what do we do? So then I started thinking and thinking, and then I started getting more and more information about what's going on in the brain <laughs> and uh, what might work. So I put together different pieces of evidence, and eventually it was clear that we need to train people to. Uh, what we know is that the ones who have PTSD end up um, remembering their event in the limbic system, in the amygdala, which is very uncontrollable. It pops up and explains the symptoms of PTSD. It's very difficult, as Basil van der Kolk talks about, the body, the body keeps the score. And people who do not develop PTSD uh, process it more in the frontal cortex. And the question is, how do you get from there to there? Obviously, just talking about it, just getting empathy probably does not do the work. And what we think today is that the secret in mental health is not just emotional expression, but it's about emotional regulation. The vagus is crucial in emotional regulation because it activates the frontal cortex. And certain uh, cognitive um, strategies like uh, reappraisal and reframing help to activate the, the frontal cortex to regulate emotions. So basically we've developed a series of steps. So the person is talking and every time they say something physical or emotional, I stop them. So they say, oh, I heard this horrible sound. And I say, sorry, can you please detail what kind of sound and why? So the verbaling and the giving causality is frontal. I heard this whistle because there was a missile, doctor, don't you know? 
and I write down. And then they continue and they say something emotional. Uh, I was afraid. I said, sorry, what do you mean by afraid and why? I, 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 and they start to, I, I, I was afraid because I didn't see my daughter. She, she, she fell. We were afraid because didn't see. And I also note down the order of the things. So if they're very traumatic, they will mix the order. So they will say one, five, three, one, two, in the order of the event, in its parts. Now I repeat to them the story, boring, like a journalist. I will say one, two, three, four, five. So it, it was seven o'clock. You had coffee with your daughter. You were eating chocolate cake, I don't know, and coffee and tea. And suddenly there was a sound. The sound was very frightening because of the missile. You were then afraid because you didn't see your daughter, etc. Cetera, et cetera. I will, I will verbalize their somatic and emotional experiences, give them reasons, and put it in order. And then I say to them, "Please, now you do it that way." And then you start hearing them talking about it like journalists, totally different. And we've also added vagal breathing before and after, so they're very calm also in the beginning. And we've shown that we've done already nine randomized trials on this. And in not all, but in most of the studies, the evidence is quite nice. Voila. So that's what we've trained psychologists to do, uh, Ina. That's that's incredible. And um, do you also measure um, HRV before and after um, to see what so, happens? Right. Uh, we did. Uh, in one recent study, we measured HRV. And I'm failing to, we're just writing up the results. I don't think we succeeded to increase HIV. Although, no, I think we did, sorry. I think SDNN went up, so one of the parameters, but I have to double check. I'm just not 100% sure. I've done so many studies on it that I forgot. We're I writing think... up the results now. And in that one, we included kids and we also added art therapy. So we used drawing to help to restructure the story. Wow. Well, <clears throat> That's uh, that's that, that's incredible, and you know it makes it makes so much sense. You know, given that the prefrontal cortex you know, is depressed, you know, its its activity is depressed. You know, at the time of trauma and at the time of you know, trauma you know, recall, right? So if you are increasing the activity of the prefrontal cortex, it has a better better ability to just put on the brakes to amygdala activation, so it kind of regulates its neural pathway. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, similar similar to affect labeling, right? If you give a name, you know, to the emotion that you're experiencing, you know, here here's the emotion. You you give it a name, um, and the neural pathways in the brain are changing. Exactly. Um, so that, that just exactly. makes, makes so much sense and um, sounds quite so much more possible than you know. Uh, walk me through all the horror you're experiencing. Yeah. Rather, let's actually reframe it. So I think that one of the reasons that the briefing is not working for most people is that you're just leaving them with their emotional mm -hmm. reactivation and not giving them any regulation. And what am I going to do with all of this? And for so many years, we were told that, you know, expressing ourselves is not important. Now, the idea is not that we should not express, but what do you do with that expression? And that's why you need the emotional regulation and exactly. the, the front activation. I agree with you. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, bring in HRV and emotion regulation makes a lot more possible. They go together hand in hand. Totally. Totally. I, I'm, I'm interested as Israel goes through, it sounds like a transition more to evidence-based models of mental health. How are mm -hmm. you hoping your work and others can inform that? Cause like uh, Stephen Porges's polyvagal theory, you mentioned Vanderkalt. I think we, we've had this 
evolving focus on this still heart rate variability is for early adapters uh there it's still not mainstream yet but I, i'm kind of wondering uh is israel maybe a little smaller sample size than the entire united states how are you hoping your work and all the great work you've done can help inform that transition uh bring that scientific lens uh evidence-based lens onto this transition thank you for this question it's not an easy path. It's a struggle. <laughs> it's a struggle. So I'm not a doctor. I'm not an MD. And I talk to doctors and physicians and biologists. Sometimes they think I'm a doctor because <laughs> my work is very biological. Um, um, so it's a struggle. Okay. And for a lot of doctors, it's the, I'm sorry, I'm going to say something very not nice. It's the hardest sentences to say is, I didn't know that. And, and that's quite international, so yeah. it's hard. Um, sometimes my colleague clinicians, clinical psychologists, say, yeah, but you know, the clinical psychologists, why are you telling us what to do? So, you know, it's a, so you need to respect, but also show why evidence is so important and what happens when we're not doing work by evidence-based. And I still think that a lot of the training is not sinking in that it should be more evidence-based and what happens, what price as a society we pay when we're treating people without evidence-based and, and that has to change. So in my country, it's changing a bit slowly, but it's changing, but still in many countries, it's still way, way, way backwards. Yeah. It has to change. It's, it's changing there, but it's going very, very slowly. And uh, so one of my ways of doing this is by training, is by teaching. And the teaching is really like putting seeds of hope. Um, that's that. what I think. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> Well, let, let me start to, to uh, uh, wrap up with one of my favorite questions here is, if you were with all your experience, all your expertise, uh, like I said, I, I think I just got to the first part of your published papers on this topic, and I think I'd love to explore each of those, so you always have an open invitation to come back. I, I would love to see it when you look as being part of this few people were talking about heart rate variability 10, 15 years ago. I think it's more, you, you talked about a conference coming up. It's getting more in the mainstream, Apple Watch, Fitbits, uh, mm -hmm. but yet still, I'd say early adapter stages. As you look 10 years into the future, um, having been part of the history of heart rate variability, what, what's your best guess? Where Where do you think we will be? I won't hold you to it, but but where where do you think we might be 10 years from now having been part of getting us to uh this point in our understanding of the vagus nerve uh heart rate variability okay. well first of all i don't want to take all the credit there have been other people you mentioned porgus and jillian Taylor is one of the most important figures this and a lot of scholars from worldwide uh it's important to mention um my dream I don't want to sound like uh, Martin Luther King. No, th probably... this is it. This is your dream. <laughs> this is your dream question, so, my friend. Go for it. My my dream is that it will be more mainstream to measure, just like we measure heart rate and blood and blood pressure. With that, we will measure HRV in hospitals. Uh, my dream is that we can start teaching in medical schools and nursing schools and psychology schools about the vagal nerve more, because. It's really about the, the vagus is really a, a psychophysiological agent and it's an agent of resilience. I didn't talk about that word. And I think that in developing countries like Africa, in so it's a continent where it's moving from 
infectious diseases to, this is really my vision, to non-communicable diseases, to rich country, rich people diseases. They don't have the resources that they have in Western countries, but activating the, this bloody nerve is so easy, okay? And measuring it is so easy. And if we could prevent diseases in these countries that have less resources for treating in a rich way and these diseases, we might be able to reduce mortality and suffering. And I would really be happy to be part of that. So that's some of my vision. Awesome. Well, well, <laughs> I, you know, as a shared interest of ours, my, my work has been in trauma as well. And uh, 20 years ago, when I started to hear about the impact of trauma, very few people were talking about it. Now it's like everybody has at least been through two or three classes on trauma, trauma-informed care. Recent graduates have had semesters, if not years-long classes. So, I mean, as, as I see this, you know, as a way to measure everything we're talking about with trauma and, and interventions like yours, like I said, if we want to know these interventions are working, I, I, do, I mean, obviously, we've got a lot of research tools, but heart rate variability will hopefully be uh, one way that we can, you know, show that evidence uh, for, for what is really working. And like you said, one of my my passions with this, and I know Ina's as well, is how do we make it affordable for everybody? How do, how is this how is this a device that, you know, if you, you've got a decent smartphone, uh, you, you can get a lot of the benefits, if not of what we've been talking about today. And I think that's where technology can really help us hopefully an AI get us, get us to the masses in a way that it doesn't price people out. And uh, yeah, it's a big challenge in front of us, but it's a, it's a great place to be. Awesome. Well, Dr. Gidron, thank you so much. Uh, this, this has been fabulous. Everything Ina said about you came absolutely true. Uh, I, I just want to give you an open invitation to come back uh, anytime you want, because I've uh, really enjoyed this conversation. I know our listeners were well. So I'll put a little information about you, your work uh, in the show notes as well. People can find those at optimalhrv.com. And I, I just appreciate your time. And, uh, you know, there's that old overused saying about standing on the shoulders of giants. Uh, but I know uh, you you are one of those people that have mm. really informed this movement. And it's always a privilege and an honor to uh, bring your work uh, to our audience as well. Thank you so much. I'm just one of many. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And, to humble, and humble. I find that is a universal trait. So thank, thank you very you. much. I wish you all hey. good health. Thank you. You, you as well. <laughs>